Uh, grab your Bibles with me this morning, church, and let's turn to the New Testament letter of 1 John. Find that in the very back of your Bible if you're new to Holy Scripture. Joyful to be committed to the preaching of the Word here at Disciples Church. We, we love to take our time to expositionally preach through uh, the books of the Bible, and um, we are just a few sermons away from finishing this first letter of the letters of John, uh, as we're in these last verses Today, focusing just on verse 19 and 20, uh, look with me at our passage. 1 John 5, 19 and 20 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Church, we have much to discover today in just two verses, so I want to dive right in. John says here in verse 19, something he has said often throughout the letter. He says, we know. We know. It's the title of today's sermon. We know. We know that we are from God. Fighting. He's fighting for his blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. He's fighting for their certainty. He wants them to have no doubts about who they are in Christ in a world where nothing is certain. We who belong to Christ have assurance and need to have great confidence that we belong to God now and forever. He wants them to have certainty of what is true, certainty and confidence of who we are in Christ. In this, John speaks to safeguard his Christian family against any kind of spiritual amnesia. Church, we need this too in all that we face day to day. We need the Word of God, the truths of God, echoing regularly in our minds so that we remember who we are in Christ and who we were when we were enslaved to sin. We remember the difference in the power of God at work within us and salvation, power in the Holy Spirit for the saved. Church, we had no hope for anything lasting for eternity when we were apart from Christ. We had no hope for God apart from Christ. This was our sad and sobering position before salvation. And it remains the sad and sobering position for all who remain outside of Christ. But there is good news. Christ came and he died and he rose again. And whom he has given saving faith, we belong to him. We are now of God, now and forever. And of this, we need to be most certain. We can be most certain because God has said so and God does not lie. All of his promises are fulfilled We can be most certain because it is based on Christ's perfect record and work and not our own 
that we are saved to begin with. Praise be to God. John says most firmly and directly, we know that we are from God. John has driven this point home already in his letter in many places, but a few to mention. Last chapter, chapter 4, verse 6, John 4, 6, we are from God. The opening verse of this chapter, chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And now in our verse today, we know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We who are saved by Christ are not of this world, but now we are of God. We belong to him. We are of God because we have been reconciled to him through Christ. To be of God is more than just belonging because we are also his heirs. Scripture says participants in his glory. In our salvation and adoption, we are brought into God's favor, his blessing, and we enjoy a restored relationship with him forever as objects of his electing love, objects of his saving grace. Church, we are heirs of his glory, residents of his eternal kingdom. We are of God. This needs to be a reality that is so dominant in how you wake up each day, in how you go forth into the things that you face Think about it with me. The God of the universe, the ruler of all things, the great and mighty I am, is our Father. If we belong to Jesus Christ, we are his beloved kids. We belong to God in a way that cannot be undone. We are his, we are of God. Understand the essence of Christianity is to belong to Him, to be secure in His mighty grip. This is truly good news. This also means a very significant shift has happened in our core being, in our core identity. We are not of this world any longer. We are now of God. And so it is important, Christian, that you see the new self in contrast to the old self. Not only so that you live the life God has saved you to live for his glory, but also that you no longer live out of the old playbook, out of the old identity and habits or beliefs of the old sinful self before life in Christ. All too often you will hear from people that say they're saved by Jesus, But they essentially and globally are not serving him, are not honoring him, they're not worshiping him, they're not devoted to him and making much of him. No, if we are from God, of God, then we are to represent God, live for God. Everything we do now is for the glory of God. 
Paul says it this way so well in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, I think for many people who claim Christ as Savior, they really don't view it biblically. They, 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 they view it on their own terms. They, they think they've added something to their life. They don't essentially see what Christ and the Scriptures talk about, what happens to a Christian at salvation, that you really die and are reborn. No longer master of your own life, but He is the master of your life. And it is your joy to serve Him in it all. Paul says, now I live by, I live in the, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Later in Galatians, he says it like this, Galatians 6, 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Christ, by which the whole world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see the identity shift. I was a part of this world. And now I'm, I'm not. I'm not of this world anymore. I'm of the Lord. So Paul's clarity is matching very much with what John's clarity is. Jesus speaks this way uh, when praying to the Father in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He says so in John 18, 36. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Can I just use that moment in history as a good reminder to us Christians? When life is going really bad... And every part of you says that this is just not the way this should work. Will you remember God the Son in flesh being turned over to be crucified? A criminal's death. And see in that how much more greatly that moment doesn't fit like if it only was about this time in life. But it's not. God is at work for the eternal. And we are a part of that. We must have that in view. Especially when it feels like the whole thing just got haywire. Christian, do you rightly and finally see that you're not of this world, not just in principle, but in your most core being, 
Every day then, when you wake up, we need to be sure to put on the jersey of the team we now play for and no longer the jersey of the team we used to play for. May it be so. To go deeper into the second part of this verse, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's an emphasis here I want to not miss this morning. Consider with me the dominion and power that the Lord allows the devil to have in this time and place. First, we must never forget that Satan is an angel and nothing more. He is a lying, evil spirit. That said, we need not dismiss him, for he is real. And as John says here, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. To understand what this means, consider these truths about the evil one. Satan is referred to in Scripture as the prince of demons, Matthew 12, 24. The undisputed ruler of a host of evil spirits that inhabit the cosmos. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, as Paul describes him in Ephesians 2, 2. This includes all unregenerate humanity and fallen angels. Satan is the little g-god of this world. The whole world order that rejects the creator and substitutes its worship for the creature, creation. Listen to Paul's words in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 4 and 6. In their case, the little g-god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Church scripture tells us that Satan is powerful in the heavens, many places, and on earth, and that Satan rules the world's sinful system. What we must also understand and never forget, though, is that Satan is not a formidable foe of God's. God and Satan are not on an even playing field, engaged in some kind of cosmic battle of all battles. No, there is one God who rules over all things, Satan included. Listen to how Paul says this in Colossians 1.16, For by him, speaking of this supremacy of Christ, all things were created. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. By him they're created. In Job, we read that Satan only did what God allowed him to do to Job. This means Satan is not omniscient, omnipotent. Nowhere in Scripture does Satan have the power to read minds or know anything exhaustively. Let us not give the attributes that belong to God alone to to the enemy, for they are not his. Satan is on a leash. God limits Satan. God promised the defeat of Satan in Genesis 3.15. 
And on the cross of Jesus, he conquered sin and death on behalf of the redeemed people of God. That promise is fulfilled. While you and I are still at war with the work of the flesh, temptations of sin in this lost world, and the powers of darkness, that that is a battle that we still are ordained to be a part of, we also, at the same time, are claimed and secure in the victory of Christ over the enemy and sin and death. We need to fear no one but God. We need to remember that God is sovereign and Satan is not. And so with these reminders, look with me again at John's words. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's these voices of false doctrine, of false teaching coming at the people of the Lord, the redeemed, and that's why John's writing. And so that that contention, that deception, that falsehood, the, the, just the narrative that's just full of just wickedness is real. It's present. So, so John is acknowledging that, but also saying, we know that we are from God. And in this, once again, as we've seen before earlier in the letter, he's highlighting a very important reality that we are a part of only one of two families. Scripture is clear to teach that our spiritual father is the devil or our spiritual father is God. You belong to one or the other. You live for one or the other. Jesus says to those still practicing sin, those without faith in Jesus, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and, you, and your will is to do your father's desires. The Bible is clear that our will is either enslaved to sin or it's enslaved to Christ. So take a moment to take some serious inventory in your own life. What is the longing of your days, your desires, your priorities, and your practices? Is it selfish? Is it fleshly and temporal? And is it sinful? Or is it God-honoring and Christ-glorifying? If you are not a child of God, not redeemed by the blood of Jesus, not surrendered to Jesus as Lord of your life and living for the glory of God, no longer living for yourself, no longer living for your kids, no longer living for your temporary pleasures, if you are are not these things, then you're a child of the devil. You're not a child of God. John is clear that there's only two groups, two teams, two spiritual fathers. You know and serve one or the other. There is no middle ground. John's synopsis of this truth at the end of chapter 3, uh, 1 John three ten. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. 
Anyone who remains in their sin belongs to the enemy unless God saves them by His amazing grace, unless God gives them a new heart, unless God lays upon you the righteousness of Christ. You're dead in sin, enslaved to sin, depraved to do nothing but sin. And we can't play light with this. We, we, can't, we can't see this in people that we love. We say like, yeah, I love Jesus, and their life is just filled with selfishness. There's no surrender. There's no real yielding. That, that needs to be of gross concern. We need to not have this like different form of Christianity that, that we feel comfortable with. Scripture speaks to it far too much to do that. We must see the stark reality. There is no confusion or man-made different conclusion that can be spun up to see it clearly so that we have a bold testimony about the truth for those that we love in this life. Those who practice sin are opposed to Christ. They're unrepentant. They're, they don't, they're not convicted by the Spirit. They're not practicing repentance. They're not surrendered to the mighty work of the Lord. And if today you believe you truly do belong to Christ, and yet your story as of late has been given far too much to the ways of the flesh and to the things of sin, then if that faith is real, you will confess it humbly as sin before God. And you will do what's necessary to turn from it, to take up a different path to live your life for the glory of God. We know that we are from God, and in opposition, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So yes, Satan is at work in the world, even though Christ has defeated him on our behalf, as God promised he would. Be assured that Satan's dominion in the ways he's given it in this time will end. Revelation 20, 9 through 10, they marched over, up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. There's not a throne for Satan in hell. He will be tormented like the rest, forever and ever. John's words here are not to be dismissed as too heavy, not important. God has ordained this for us, church. Either you are of the world and your master is Satan, or you are of God and your Lord is Jesus Christ. Praise God that we who have been given saving faith now belong to Christ. Again, this is something in your life that just is so much bigger than anything else that has happened or is happening to you. And it is, it is what 
needs to propel our days, propel our stewardship of our days, propel our worship and our testimony of these things. What a blessing it is, church, that we are from or of God. John continues in verse 20, look with me. And we know, we know that the Son of God has come. We know that He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Once again, John is establishing a counterpunch to the false teacher's heresy by stating firmly that God has made most clear in His Word and His work that the eternal Son of God did indeed put on flesh and accomplish the work of the promised Messiah. False teachers, the heretics, they wanted to say, no, it's not true. And that's heresy. Remember how John emphasized this point at the very opening of the letter. Here we are at the, at the very end of this letter, opening verses of the letter. 1 John 1, 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. False teachers were denying the fact that Jesus was actually God who came in flesh, John, knowing that his hearers were being confounded and confronted with their heresy, with their lies, he continues to love his blood-bought brothers and sisters in this letter to drive home, those are lies. You know Jesus is the Son of God, the incarnate one, the Messiah, the promised one. This is the essential doctrine of the incarnation that we must cling to without compromise. It is... It is all throughout this letter, it's, it, it's established so heartily in John's Gospel, most famously in chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14, the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The living and eternal God the Son took on human form and human nature. The God of the universe in a body like yours and mine is a huge deal. And why does it matter that John's emphasis in the opening verses of this letter is because you can identify with flesh, you can touch it, you feel its heartbeat. The incarnation matters because the Lord pierced that flesh on our behalf that he would be the sacrificial lamb nailed to a cross for the sins of many that we could be redeemed pardoned ransomed from our sin to reign with him forever in glory the fact that jesus is fully god and became fully man is so important for our salvation his redemptive work as the messiah because he had to be like us in every way, to be our representative, had to be without sin, to be the only worthy atonement 
for our eternal standing with God. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the incarnation. And so here, John, drive it home again. 1 John 5.20, We know that the Son of God has come. Truly good news to our soul. 1 Timothy 3.16, He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the, word, in the world, taken up in glory. Back to verse 20, let's see the next layer of what Christ has given us. We know that the Son of God has come. This is reestablishing us in the doctrine of the Incarnation. It's essential part of our saving faith, the essential work of Jesus in our place. And has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. The second essential work of Christ, John highlights here, is to bring His people understanding of truth. John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, he says that Jesus came into the world and many did not understand his truth or receive him. But in God's sovereign grace, many were given saving faith to understand and become children of God. Look how John says this in the opening words of the Gospel of John. John 1, 10 through 13, leading up to that famous verse 14 I just read. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a game-changing blessing it is to be given understanding to know the truth. In a world full of spiritual immaturity, false doctrine, fleshly deceit, we are desperate for truth. Notice John's emphasis here in the Gospel and in our verse today in his letter. Both are saying Jesus is truth. John is saying, you who are in Christ know the truth. Jesus says this most clearly in the Gospel of John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus is saying that all other philosophies, whether postmodernism, existentialism, secular humanism, all other man-made theologies and ideologies, all other religions, man-made religions, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, will fail to arrive at ultimate truth. Why? Because the truth is only found in Jesus. And therefore, no man-made ideology or man-made religion is true. Jesus also marks a particular point of good emphasis in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. 
saying that all those who are outside of saving faith, they don't have ears to hear truth. Here's how he says it. Mark 4.11, he said to them, To you, speaking to the disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is parables. They, they hear the stories, but they don't understand the truth. Paul adds to this to say that those outside of Christ are not spiritually discerned. Because they are spiritually dead, the truths of God are folly to them. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There must be a spiritual awakening. That which is spiritually dead, that which is enslaved to sin, that which is apart from Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit to give spiritual life, will not understand the truth. Paul speaks to this well and saying rather than being or acting like children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, we who belong to Christ walk and speak in the truth. So when Jesus says, I am truth in John 14, 6, this is meant to be revolutionary in our lives, church. Why? Because we can finally know true north. What is John driving home in this closing remarks of this letter? It is this beautiful emphasis. He's telling the believers that among many deceivers in the world, we know him who is truth. He's given us understanding. Unstopped our deaf ears, ears to hear and understand. Spiritually awakened mind to, to embrace these truths. Looking more closely at the Greek word John uses here for true, it is the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 6, 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There are many things in this world that are trying to convince you that they are the source of life. If I just had this, then finally it would all start to come together. Be happy. All my problems would be fixed. I'd... If you only had this or that, then you can finally be satisfied, finally be happy. Bread is pointing to satisfaction, to sustenance, to sustenance for life. That's the metaphor used when speaking of bread. So Jesus is saying, I am the true sustenance. I am the true satisfaction of life, as opposed to that which is temporary or even false. This is too big to just hear and move on. This is where many of us, even, even us believers, for many years, 
we still don't really get this, and we need to. Oh, I've been praying that it would click for you today. True life, lasting life, satisfying life is only found in Him. Jesus is life, but He doesn't just make life better. And, and too many Christians, that's really the way they treat Jesus. I, I add Jesus, I have Jesus, I have these things, and it makes my life better. And that is a, a broken way to think about what Christ really is to you as a believer. He's everything. The gospel, the good news, is not Jesus has come to make things easy, to give you money, take away your physical pain, save you so you can live another day, give you a spouse you'll love, allow you to work hard and buy your dream car. All that's fine, but it's temporary. The good news is Jesus. God became flesh. He lived out His mission to fling open the door to life. Eternal indescribable, glorious, reconciled life with God, with Christ, now and forever. We need to see our identity in Christ better than we do so that we live it out better than we have. Your flesh will tempt you on many days to say, yeah, yeah, all this is good, but, but let's just get this thing worked out. And then, and then you... Put all your, your hopes and your, and, and your efforts into that. And in that very motion, you move, turned from the very thing that is to fulfill the very thing you're looking for. Oh, we give so much, too much power to the defeated flesh. Not enough credit to the reigning power of the Spirit. Praise God. He's given us understanding. He's given us himself who is true. And then he dives a little deeper. Look at the second part of verse 20. He says, And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. Takes it a step further to drive home the the depth of our union with Christ. It is not just that we know Him who is true. It's better, it's deeper. We are, the Scriptures say, in Him who is true. The the emphasis of the saved is not just being reconciled to know God, to know Christ, but is to abide in Him. This is a point that John has made time and time again in this letter. Uh, just a quick blitz and just let it wash over you. First John 2, 5-6, through six, By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In First John 2, 24, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 
1 John 2.28, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 3.6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 1 John 3.24, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. 1 John 4.13, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. 1 John 4.15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. To abide in Him is a reference to a divine fellowship. That only those who have been born again are capable of having be reconciled to a fellowship, to abiding in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To abide is to actively be plugged into the source of life, which is Christ Himself. We do not thrive in the Christian life by turning away or unplugging. It's in those moments, in those seasons that we drift, that we wander, that, that, that we slow down, that we savor sin instead of Jesus. To abide is to remain constantly in Christ, pondering His Word, Acting for His glory and will, living out of who He is in us. When we abide in Him, we are actively dependent on Him. Christian, never forget that the prize of your salvation is not just that you are forgiven of your sins. That, that is a totally amazing truth. God's grace to forgive us is beyond contemplation, but it's not just to get to heaven. It's going to be beyond what we can imagine. This is true. But the prize is that we get God. I have Him. I am reconciled to Him. I abide in Him. And so when life is crumbling, your dreams are being squashed, the wickedness of the world's agenda is getting to you and to your loved ones, We stand fast. We abide in the fact that we have God. And He is at work in you. And what compares to that? Nothing compares to that. First John 1, 3 through 4, the next part of the opening verses of the letter, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please, please, don't do what we all have done, and that is to say, Pastor, these are, these are good things today. And then you still step to the side and say, okay, so I just still need this to work. I don't know. Your joy would be complete in Christ.
core of the fruit of spiritual knowledge, give us understanding, is fellowship with God. So when John says in his concluding words that we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, he's bookending this sweet reality for all those whom God has saved. Bookending it. The same way he opened with those words, he's closing the letter with those words. There's one last part of verse 20 that we must look at this morning before we wrap up. And in John's writing, it is a unique statement. It is a very sharp statement of the divinity of Christ. That is unique to his writings. And so theologians and myself believe it to be an important elevation of this truth that this last, in these last words of this letter that we need not miss. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. There is no other. There is no other way to have eternal life. Jesus said so. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying that He is the way, the only vehicle to eternal life. He doesn't point you in the right direction. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You must not miss this today. You must not treat Christianity like a a religious system of to-dos and to-don'ts. It can't become to you only a schedule of practices. It, It may include a discipline of practices, but those are no good unless you know Jesus. To know Him, to trust Him, to abide in Him. Jesus said this from the beginning of His ministry. Throughout John's Gospel, we have this sweet consistency in Jesus' teaching to point to this truth through the different pictures and metaphors of this life with His famous I Am statements. To remind, them, to remind you of them quickly, John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8.12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10.7-9, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five through 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Later he will say in John 15, I am the true vine. The good news is that there is a way. There is a real absolute truth. There is eternal life. The qualifier is you must have Jesus to have those things. Please don't ever let the fact that God made a way for many to be saved to become dull to you. To become not a big deal. It is a huge deal that God has even made a way because we all deserve the flood. We all deserve eternal wrath for our sinful rebellion against the holy God. This is no small offense, but one worthy of our eternal punishment. Good news is that God made a way for us. God made a way for us. Amen? And that's good news. And there's one I am statement I didn't mention to you, and it's unique among the others. It's the same as the others. When Jesus says, I am, he is also doing something not random or ambiguous. He's doing something very firm to claim the deity of God. To claim the name of God that God gives of Himself in the Old Testament. Jesus said in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Because Jesus is eternally God the Son, there is no was that describes him. He always has been, is, and always will be. Before Abraham was, I am. To highlight the eternality of Jesus, but also it's his way to claim the divinity of God. He's claiming the very name of God, Yahweh. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. It is a Hebrew word that, that just is proclaiming to exist. The one true God that exists among all the other man-made gods, especially in Egypt, as that was said to Moses, among a system, a worldwide system of, of false deities, of false gods, little g man-made gods, who are not real, who are made in the minds of man. I exist. Yahweh. His name is full of power and wonder and worthy of honor and and obedience. In a world where values and morals and laws change consistently, we find stability and security in the unchanging God. And, And I just ask you this morning, do you miss the radiance, the glory, the majesty, the holiness that is belonging to God? It's hallowed, it's set apart. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Jesus is God. 
is worthy of our honor. So John says, He is the true God and the eternal life. Driving this home for his beloved. He doesn't want them to forget. He doesn't want them to slip away. He, he wants them to know. Do you know? Are you living your life like you know? Abiding in Him in all things. Just a few verses ago, John said it like this in verse 13, John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Beloved, God wants you to know, to be certain, to have real confidence that you have eternal life in Christ and always will. Listen to David's famous words in Psalm 23, verse 4 and 6. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian, our boldness, our fearlessness is in this unbreakable promise of God. Unbreakable reality to abide in Him, to know Him. Even 10,000 shadows of death as they come over us, we shall not fear because we have Christ. Because He is God, because He is our Good Shepherd and our mighty Savior. Christian, He has us. We must know this and never forget it, that it would shape our lives. And when we get this, it is truly comforting of the greatest proportion. I pray it is yours today. When we get this, our faith is at work in the most amazing ways. That's what John wants for his beloved. That's what God wants for us in enduring his word to study this letter. I want you to have this confidence in who you are in Christ, church. In your eternal standing with God. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen? I'm thankful we know this to be true. Pray with me. Lord, you are blessing us in so many ways this morning with just the simplicity, the, the good truths of these two verses. Truths that, that John has highlighted and emphasized time and time again in this letter. Truths that surely we need to have emphasized and highlighted time and time again in our walk. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the work you have done already this morning and will do as a result of it, that these truths would continue to go to work, meditating on them day and night, responding in faithful obedience, humble repentance, and faithful steadfastness to steward these days that you give to us. That Jesus really would be enough. More than enough. We have much to say and celebrate in Christ. To 
today, and if you give us tomorrow, then tomorrow. Hear us as we respond in song and prayer. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, pray. Amen.